Morning. That's a little hot, isn't it? <clears throat> How we doing? Good. That's terrible. How we doing? All right. That's it. Let's. That's a little much. Let's get into the word together. Uh, Revelation chapter seven. If you'd open your Bibles. <laughs> you know, as you're turning there, um, one thing that we believe is that every Sunday when we gather in this space between call to worship and benediction, worship, we're experiencing a redemptive event. I found that that's a helpful way to think about it. This is an event, this is a moment when God has promised to show up by His Spirit, through His Word, and work miracles in our hearts. Um, so we expect the elders pray, uh, for and, and we just expect, and I hope you come with that expectancy of God is working, God is doing things, God is moving in a special way when we're all here together, gathered, uh, and God's word is both spoken to you and then you speak back to God. It's a dialogue. So we're in conversation with God this morning. Uh, he's speaking through his word and we're responding with prayer, with singing, um, so I guess all that to say, pretty special, pretty unique. Uh, I don't think anything else in the world is going on uh, as powerful in a spiritual sense as what we're doing here, even though it doesn't appear that way uh, to the world. So let's read together Revelation chapter 7, um, starting in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, th neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for a vision of the end. Lord, when sanctification is complete, when we will be holy as you are holy, when uh, death is swallowed up in victory, when we 
will be physically near you in your presence, your throne and the Lamb. Father, forgive us for not thinking of it more. Forgive us for being too earthly minded. Forgive us for thinking this is the real life and that is the afterlife. No. Or this is what we live for. So wash us clean of our unbelief, of our lack of faith, of our lack of taking the hope of the Bible seriously. And we ask for your encouragement. We ask for your grace. We ask that you would wash us clean and make us, Lord, people whose minds are set on the things above and the things to come. That is how we move through and journey through this world. That is how we endure. We have to have a vision of the future. So grant that to us, Lord. We pray that you would bless this, the preaching of your word, for your namesake and your glory. This is all about you, Lord. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about what you are doing in us and through us. For all things are from you and through you and to you. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. We jump back into the same vision from last week. Uh, um, John, what John is seeing, the complete number of saints sealed and delivered from the wrath of God into glory. And there are a number of theories uh, about this text and who we're seeing here. Um, My sense is we're dealing with the same group of people as earlier in chapter 7. Okay? So you have 144,000, then you have this great multitude. I, I think we're seeing the same people, but from different perspectives. So like if you were at a baseball game and you started just behind the dugout, and then midway through the game, you went to the outfield bleachers. It's the same game, but you're seeing it from a different perspective. Uh, your, your line of sight, what, what you're going to notice is very different depending on where you're sitting. So the 144,000 is the complete number of saints seen from the perspective of earth. Sealed, known, protected spiritually. The multitude is a vast number of saints seen from the perspective of heaven. Together, glorified, too numerous to count. I think we're talking about the same people, just seen from different perspectives. And remember, chapter 7 is very connected to chapter 6. Earthly judgment, you remember, is promised at the beginning of chapter 6. The four horsemen are going out. But then the beginning of chapter 7, the saints are sealed. They're protected spiritually from the judgment. The end of chapter 6, do you remember? A vision of the final judgment, the wrath of God being poured out. Well, the end of chapter 7 is all those who have come out of that into heaven to be glorified. They are protected from the wrath at the final judgment. So there's a parallel, I think, between chapter 6, chapter 7, I think we're meant to catch that. And 
at the end of the day, after all the tribulation, after all the trials, we're answering the question, who can stand? Who can stand? The church, the people of God, the sealed, those who wash their sins in the blood of the Lamb. Why does God show us all this? Why does he show us this? Uh, why not just say, trust in Jesus and you'll go to heaven and it'll be great? Why not leave it at that? I mean, it's not for him, is it? He already knows this stuff. He knows what it's like. He's living it. He sees it. He's showing it for you. He's showing it for our purposes. I think God has made us as creatures who must look forward. We can't help it. We can't help it. Proverbs 13, 19 says, A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. You just naturally long for things. You look forward. The next good thing that's coming down the pipe, uh, you hope for things. You do that because God does that. You are made in his image, and he made this world with a goal, with an end, with something that he saw, he wanted to accomplish at the end, something good. In that sense, eschatology precedes soteriology. Think about it. What I mean is there was a goal even before there was a fall. There was a purpose, an end, a telos for which the, the, the world was created that if Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned, we wouldn't need a Savior. You wouldn't need salvation. That just becomes a means to accomplish what God already wanted to do, which was to dwell with His people in glory and righteousness forever. God knows it really helps to have something to look forward to. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. You were made for that. You were made to look forward, to be excited about something good that's coming. Like if I told you next Sunday is going to be 75 and sunny, and it will stay that way forever. How hard would it be to get through this week? Like it could be miserable. It could be cold, windy, cloudy, dreary. It wouldn't matter. It's one week. You'd be, you'd be smiling and singing worship songs. All you Baptists would be dancing or at least tapping your feet a little. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. You, you, you're good. You're golden because you know what's coming. Parents would have supernatural patience for one week. Oh, you peed in the refrigerator? It's no big deal. It's fine. You threw up in your bed? I wanted to get up at 3 a.m. and do some cleanup, spring cleaning. Because you have something coming that's good, you know it empowers you. It helps you when difficulty comes in the meantime. That's why God gives us passages like this. He's saying after a hard, short life, this is coming. Eternal life is coming. You have everything to look forward to if you are in Christ. 
it's almost like a week. That's what our life is. It's a vapor. And you have something better than 75 and sunny coming. Listen, suffering is never ultimate. Never, never, never. Not for the Christian. Whatever you're going through, it is not ultimate. It will not last. Not for the Christian. One day, friends, one day, soon, we will get in to that country we have only heard news of, to that concert we have only heard a few faint notes of, to that feast we have only smelled the scent of. No matter how long the winter, the spring will come. And it will last forever. And God wants that on your mind. He wants it on your mind. Is it? It needs to be. If you're going to make it, you have to be thinking about that day, about this picture. He is on the move. So if you came here today and you don't have a lot of hope, you came to the right place because God is on the move. You're not going to hear any doom and gloom up here. I'm sorry if that's what you were looking forward to. It's going to be hope. And maybe that's a break from your week, okay? You know, we talk about how much God doesn't tell us in the Bible. There's mystery. We don't know this for sure. And that's true. But I think we forget about how much He does tell us. He tells us a lot. He gives us a pretty significant picture. You know, if you just walk through the New Testament, and I would say do this if you've never done it, just circle every verse that has to do with Jesus' return, heaven, hope, looking forward. It's everywhere when you start looking for it. In Revelation, we don't just hear about it. We see it through John's eyes. So I want to walk through the text, and I want to make some observations as we go. So look at verse 9 with me. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So if 144,000 communicates completeness, This great multitude communicates vastness. We move from individual election to corporate community within chapter 7. And I'd love to spend more time here, but this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is it. When God said, your descendants, your offspring will be more than the dust of the earth. They will be like the stars in the heavens. They will be like the sand on the seashore. This is it. God did it. So, first observation. Number one, you are meant for community. If this is perfection, then you were meant to be with other people. Sorry. (laughs) That's God's design. You're meant to be with people. It doesn't say a great multitude zoomed in from their bedrooms. You're physically present. 
They're standing within touching distance of the throne of God. We're all there together. You feel that physical presence. That's why what we do on church, what we do at church on Sunday is a small taste of heaven. Something special happens when we're together. Listen, everything we do as a church together is not a box to check. It's an opportunity to flourish. We don't come to church to check a box. We come here to flourish. We don't do life group, Sunday school, Bible study in your living room, coffee with a friend to like, okay, God, you know, I did my good deed for the day. No, that's how you flourish. That's what you were made for. Not to be alone, always. I know we need to be alone in this world sometimes. Uh, we need a break from each other because we're difficult. You know, you're difficult. I'm difficult. Uh, uh, we have limited capacities. We get tired uh, uh, being with each other. But heaven won't be like that. No one will be difficult. When you bump into someone, you won't feel annoyed. Uh, you won't go into a, a, a grocery store and be nervous that you're going to bump into someone, okay? You won't ever feel that. You won't be exhausted. Like, will he ever stop talking? Will she ever stop talking? You, you, you won't be exhausted by anyone. Because community is what you were created for. Did you know that God is always in community? Loving community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They never need a break from each other. So if you have trouble being with people, if you have social anxiety, if people drain you, hear God's promise, you will be changed. It won't be like that in heaven. When you're with your family, it will never drain you. It will only fill you. Number two, what divides us now will unify us then. What divides the human race now? Culture, language, geography, money, ethnicity. In heaven, God will flip all those things. They will become sources of unity, not division, because, because the gospel transcends them all. The gospel destroys barriers. It breaks down walls that separate us. Gospel love creates unity in diversity. Again, the Trinity. Unity in their diversity. Friends, we will all have the same culture. Holiness. Holiness will be our culture. We will all have the same language of heaven. The Tower of Babel uh, uh, messed everything up, and then Pentecost reversed it. That was just a taste. Hearing the gospel in your own languages, that barrier broken down, it will be like that in heaven. We will have the same geography, the new earth. We will have the same status, children of God. We will have the same spiritual ethnicity in Christ. And any difference that remains, how we look, our personality, our story, will only serve to magnify our unity in Christ. And we'll get to enjoy that diversity in our unity. So what divides us now will unify us here in heaven. Number three, shame will transform to honor. 
Shame will transform to honor. A white robe signifies honor, dignity, royalty. Palm branches signify celebration. And I know for some of you that's hard to imagine. First of all, just having fun, (laughs) celebrating, having a good time. Um, Nothing to be Dr. Doom about anymore. There will not be cable news in heaven. God gave me that word this morning, okay? I believe it's from him. There will be nothing to bring you down. But also, I think it's hard to imagine being honored like this. After the things I've done, my secret sins, the mistakes I've made, my past life, my failures as a Christian... That can't be me. There's no way. I don't deserve that. I know some of you feel that way. It's even hard to conceive of. You are in a white robe as a king or queen in the presence of God. If you are faithful... Not a super Christian. If you're faithful to stay on the path of following Jesus, you will be honored. And it will feel right. Because it is right. You have conquered in Jesus. You have conquered in Jesus. You won't feel uncomfortable in this moment. I'm guessing if I started to call you up here, onto the stage in front of everybody, and I start saying nice things about you with you guys, that'd be easy. But if I started to do that, you'd feel pretty uncomfortable. When is this going to be over? Can I please sit down? Now, some of you, I might have to be like, get off the stage. That's enough. We're done. I think most of you feel uncomfortable. You won't feel like that on that day. Because it will be right because... You obeyed God. You did. Not everyone did. That's why the great benediction of that day will be well done, good and faithful servant. It just blows your mind that I would be honored, that I would be judging angels. But it's going to happen. I want to be there with you. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Notice the two amens. Blessing and glory and wisdom And thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. They're singing. Number four. We will know God did it all. We will know God did it all. It's interesting. The saints don't cry out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to me. It's not what they say because there's no confusion. There's no tension They know God did it all. Listen, if you go to hell, it's your fault. You deserve it. But if you find yourself in heaven, you know who to blame. 
or think. God alone. God alone. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this of heaven. There will be no room for vanity then. We will be free from the miserable illusion that it is our doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, we will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made us to be. And the moment which heals our old inferiority complex forever will also drown our pride. I could write a sentence like that. I would just say, don't wait until you're in heaven to be free from the sad illusion that you contribute to your salvation. This is important. And the train horn is helping. It is. Don't confuse your responsibility to believe with your ability to believe. Don't confuse your responsibility to believe with your ability to believe. You have a responsibility to believe. You have no ability. You're dead. Dead people don't do good things. It has to be a gift. It has to be a gift. From A to Z, salvation is a gift. You just, again, you read the Bible, you just, man, it really starts to pop. Why is that a good thing? Why is that good news? Because it is good news that salvation belongs to the Lord. Number one, if you didn't do it, you can't mess it up. Because I guarantee you, if, if we could mess it up, we would. I would. I'm a sinner. It's also good because you can't handle the glory. I can't handle the glory. If if even 1% is because of me, my ego just goes through the roof. Okay? I can't handle it. I I, I can't even handle people just saying some nice things to me. I got to like battle that in my will. No, the glory needs to go to God. And actually, that is the best thing for us. It is absolutely the best thing. And that's why Paul says, Ephesians 2.9, salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's not punishing you. That's a gift. You have nothing to boast about in this moment. We can't handle it, and we would mess it up. It all belongs to God. He does it. He changes your hearts so that you might believe. Thankfully. Thankfully. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Before I get to the next point, let me just explain what's going on here. Uh, This is an interesting little interaction John has with an elder in heaven. Um, And I think the elder is asking John the question that's already on his mind. As he's watching the scene of worship, he he has a question on his mind, and that's what the elder asks him. Um, Like if you were sitting with your five-year-old, and he's watching 
fireworks for the first time, and you say to him, what are those things? What's that loud noise? How are they doing that? It's the question you know he has that he wants to ask, and you just ask it for him. And he says, Daddy, you know. Please tell me, what is that? How do they do that? That's what's going on here. That's how John responds. Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Please tell me. I know that you know. And the elder tells him they are those coming out of the great tribulation. As I've said, I think this is the tribulation that began with Jesus' own sufferings and will end in a brief time of heightened suffering. We're going to get to those moments, 42 months, um, just before his return. Any saint who comes into heaven during that time between the two comings, I think is who's in view here, Jew and Gentile, martyred or not, all the way from you know, Stephen's time to the end. Coming out of the great tribulation, we're in it. And they've washed their lives in the blood of the Lamb. Number five, you will never feel sin again. You will never feel sin again. Psalm 51, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Isaiah 1, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. As you come into heaven, it's a weird picture, but it's, it's almost like you take a final bath in Jesus' blood. And that's weird, but that's kind of what's happening. When you die in the Lord, your sanctification is complete. Something happens. A transition happens. Now, if it's before Jesus' return, your body's here. Your soul goes to be with the Lord. The intermediate state is kind of what we call that. But you are perfected. You shed your sinful skin, and what emerges is purity, glory from underneath. Now, how many of you, and maybe this is mainly for the guys, how many of you have spilled grease or oil on your clothes? Anybody? Saw a couple young men. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, does it come out? Not really. I know you're all thinking of some miracle spray or something, okay? But I think generally, all right, blood, oil, grease, probably not going to come out. You're going to be living with that <laughs> the rest of your life if you want to keep that particular item of clothing. And it will always remind you of the taco you tried to eat too fast and the grease came out the other side. It's on there. What the death of Jesus offers is the chance for you to be clean, morally clean. The worst of stains are removed like they never happen. Like they never happen. How? You need something so pure, so innocent, so valuable that it can cleanse those stains. You need a life that is as holy and even greater than your unholiness. A person who is so holy that it, 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 it outpaces, it, it, it's greater than your unholiness. There's only one. The blood, the life of Jesus Christ. 
when you believe he died for you, you are in fact clean. You are. Whiter than snow in his eyes. And slowly, slowly, we begin to believe that that's actually true, don't we? It's hard to believe. God says it's true, so it is. Jesus said to his disciples, you are clean already because of the word I have spoken to you. It's hard to believe. And we slowly, that's sanctification, that's this life, like believing the gospel, believing that I am clean if I have trusted in Jesus. But here, when you transition from earth to heaven, from struggle to serenity, what is true and what you feel become the same thing. What God says is true, the moment you believe, you feel it. You feel totally pure. Can you imagine that? All the stains. I don't see them anymore. God doesn't, but in this life, I do. I notice them. You will not feel any sin, any stain. You'll never have to confess again. You'll never have to repent again. You'll never have to forgive anyone for anything ever again. It's the final bath, eternally clean. And you know that because where are they standing? In the presence of him who cannot even look upon evil. His eyes are too pure. So when he's looking at these glorified saints, there's no evil in them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to stand here. They'd be falling apart like Isaiah. Verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night and in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wipe away, it's a strong word. It's like, get rid of forever. Number six, the end of suffering, the beginning of reward. What I see in this language is not only the end of suffering, but the beginning of reward. Reward for that suffering. So God is not only going to stop the bad, he's going to pour out the good. It's not just that nothing bad will happen. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more cold, heat, tears. It's that everything perfect will happen. Springs of living water in God's presence, the fullness of it forever. This is the nature of eternal life. This is the nature of eternal life. We have to take it in, in, in images and pictures because we can't handle what it actually is. What that means for you now is that every sacrifice is worth it. Whatever you give up in this life will be given to you in equal measure in the life to come. Jesus says in Mark 10, when you leave father, mother, brother, sister, whatever you leave, whatever you give up for me, you will receive in this life 
a hundredfold. That's shocking. Carrie and I were talking about it. We feel what we left behind, where we were in, in coming here, we can attest that that promise is true. We feel like we've received a hundredfold in following God's call. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, hundredfold in this life and in the next life, eternal life. Like what? What in those two words, what is packed into them? We get a taste. Let that motivate you. Let that drive you to choose God's way, to choose what is right, to choose Jesus. That's what God wants it to do. He wants it to move you to sacrifice your life, to lay it down because this is coming. Moses did. Hebrews 11, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. You need to know that all the sacrifices you make every day um, for your spouse, for your kids, for your parents, for your friends, for your neighbors, for the stranger at work, God sees them all. God knows them better than you do. You don't have to post about them. They're being written down. Okay? It's okay if not everybody knows. God knows the sacrifices that you're making, and there's not a sacrifice small enough that he will not reward it. No act of kindness is too small. Bringing a cup of water for someone who's thirsty. I think it's interesting that Jesus chooses that. Matthew 24, Matthew 25. That small thing, that's how someone knows you're a Christian. And that's his heart. This is the good shepherd. This is what he delights to do. He doesn't have to do it because he owes you. He delights to do it. He wants to give you this. So sacrifice for him. Sacrifice for him, yes, because he has loved you first. Yes, because you're grateful for your salvation. But also because you're looking toward the reward. It's not just the end of suffering, friends. It's the beginning of everything good, and it will be paid back to you more than you realize. Not big things for God, little things. Little things. It's the beginning of life, real life. As the great preacher D.L. Moody wrote, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. Let's pray. Father, we look to that day. Uh, what a strange thing that our death would be the gateway to life that in the final moment of suffering, we begin to really live. Help us, Lord. Help us to live like that every day, to sacrifice, to endure, to be faithful, to cling to Jesus, to persevere, to endure, 
knowing that this is coming. You have promised it, and it's impossible for you to lie. May it change us. May the future change us today. Lord, may our view and vision of heaven change us on earth. May we encourage each other with these things. Help us to to speak the word to each other. To say, brother, sister, remember where you're going. Remember what's coming. I know you're sad. I know you're discouraged. I know it's hard. And it is. But be encouraged. You will be with the Lamb. And He will shepherd you to springs of living water forever. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.